This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Good morning and welcome to Let, Let Your, Your Voice, Voice Be, Be Heard. heard. So Lita, that was a really gangstalicious intro you just no, had No, it right wasn't because I didn't even get to finish. Oh, no, I'm talking about the music, Selena. Oh, the music that you played. Yeah, no, that Selena was, that was, was really here, good. You know, cooking the- that. Work. No, but did you play that in honor of Made in America, which was in Philadelphia, which Meek Mill um, performed at? No, I nobody did not. Cared. No one I, cares I, about Meek Everyone Mill. cared. Beyonce was like the headliner. Everyone no, cared. nobody cared about Meek Mill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he wrote on Nicki Minaj, so that made the performance well, worth it. Nicki Minaj, I'm not a fan of her right now either. Oh. But nobody cares about Meek Mill. I mean. Exactly. I get it. Yeah, it's so, all good. So well, except like, for you. You played the song. Well, yeah, because it was the first song in the CD we had. I didn't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't play it for a reason, guys. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard. I am back on Let Your Voice Be Heard. I know you guys missed me. No, you missed didn't. my dashing good looks. Oh, yeah, you weren't we here last week. We missed my stunning personality. We missed my always correct Republican, not logic, logic. I'm so <laughs> bad, guys. I missed you all. Except for you, Selena and Alyssa. You know, I actually missed Alyssa's song choices. From last week, Alyssa, I was an engineer, Alyssa gave me the music, and we held it down, Stanley. It was an all-women empowerment show. I should have made a new CD for this week. That I sounds got... like a horrible show for me, <laughs> No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was It was really good, guys. No, we and... had a really good show last week. Yeah, we did. And we're going to have a great one this week. Why? Because we're going to talk about the Pope, the President, and climate change. That doesn't sound fun at all. <laughs> is... I mean... It's fun for me when the thing is we need to raise some awareness about what's going on in Alaska. And I think that what the Pope has been doing, Pope Francis, by him telling people of faith, it is your moral obligation to preserve the earth um, and making some moves, making some progress. I'm going to disagree on raising awareness with respect to climate change because I feel like you should be aware already. There's no further need to raise awareness. There's further need to talk about the problem and the solutions. If you want to talk about raising awareness, you should turn into our second segment because that's really the segment where we're going to be raising awareness about a huge crisis that's going on in Europe right now, and that's about refugees that are leaving the Middle East, and that's a thing personally something we really have to raise awareness to whereas climate change is something we have to talk about solutions well, well not some necessarily because yeah not everyone knows about yeah, it there are plenty of people yeah. who are not aware or refuse to acknowledge climate change so this is important i have a friend who um works in south dakota if they mention climate change they get booed <laughs> yeah no no i didn't mean it like that i think the people who you, you're talking about who don't believe in it they're aware of the concept it's not that you need to make them aware that was kind of my point it's you need to you need to reach them further, not just make them. They, they're aware and they just don't believe it. That's, that's different. Not everyone than not was, being aware. There was a poll that showed um, that not everyone even knows what climate change is. Like uh, I, don't I don't know, know. I where find they that, live. I find that quite hard to believe. I think they just polled me, Selena's high school friends. <laughs> <laughs> Your I high find school. that quite. I mean, I'm sure there's definitely people. There's always people out there that don't know about things, but I find it hard to believe that that's a large number of people. Well, anyways, well, not everyone knows about the severity of it. Well, and we'll definitely talk about that. Different. Right. Issue severity, right. the severity keyword. Of it. Anyways, definitely. I am Alyssa, um, and uh, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Alyssa Fuchs with an I, or you can comment on the fan page that's politically preposterous or at poll preposterous on Twitter. Definitely, guys. And my name is Selena Hill on Instagram and Twitter. It's Miss Selena Hill, spelled with an M S. And on Snapchat, it's s.hill2020, where I have the most fun. So definitely follow me there. Selena has the weirdest Snapchat I've ever seen. What do you mean? Oh my God, the air is my favorite part of Mother Nature. <laughs> 
That was the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Sammy, I, I Sammy, heard the most ridiculous that was thing. Not, that's not even what I wrote. I said that the sunset and the sky is my favorite part of nature, and that I take pictures of the sunset dumber. all the time. Whatever. Whatever. It's like my gripe is that everybody's living through their camera. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were like, oh, I went to a concert, but I didn't watch the concert because I was filming the whole thing. So when I went home, I watched the concert on the phone because of all the videos I took. And I went, wait, you spent like $300 to go to a concert, and you weren't even present there because you were watching the whole concert through your phone so that you could have pictures of it later? Uh, To me, that's so silly. I'm like completely the opposite. I went to the Oddball Comedy Festival on Friday. It was amazing. It was Aziz Ansari, Amy Schumer at Jones Beach, a bunch of other people. You know, I did not take one photo. I did not shoot one video because I spent a lot of money to enjoy this comedy show and be there, not filming it. I don't understand that. Why are you surprising to you, Selena? Like, you want to... What? Like, even when I was in San Francisco... And mm-hmm. I loved it out there. But my first priority was to soak it all in. I yep. had to take pictures. The second priority was, oh, let me take some pictures and videos so I have some stuff to reflect on later. But there was so much more that I did out there that I did not pick up my phone for a second because you want to live in the moment. I totally Yeah, don't. I don't get that, guys. Cause I, <laughs> That's because I, uh, I, that, I hate to say I it. In that, some ways, it's like you're not living. Trust right. me. Put down the camera for a minute and Look, you'll understand what we're talking about. My phone is an extension a, of my life and I want my followers to enjoy what I'm enjoying in the moment all the time in real time. And so. she also loves to get brain cancer <laughs> 10 years from now oh when she starts growing a large tumor on the side of her face like because Snapchat. the phone has become tumor. part of her body. I know, right? Well, speaking of something that is cancerous we're also going to talk about the anti-gay movement that's been going on in kentucky so kim davis is still trending on twitter she's actually like the number one trending topic um i believe and it's because she refuses to issue any marriage licenses in kentucky um because same-sex marriage has been approved by the Supreme Court. There are people who are saying that this is religious persecution. No, it's right. not. Right. But yes, I'm going to get you. into that later, so Damn don't it. jump the gun trying, on me. Yeah, I was trying to like, go off and like, you stop me with your smartness list. I um, appreciate that. By the way, follow me on Twitter, Darkskin Swindle. I didn't do that earlier. That's silly. You're not. Is your Twitter name Darkskin Swindle? Oh, wait, it's no, it's not. not. It's not. It's Stan Fritz. Sorry, I forgot. Yeah, it's all good, Stanley. But no, um, Alyssa will definitely give us a breakdown of yeah. the legality and the controversy going on in Kentucky. I mean, just briefly now, and obviously I'm going to give you more later, but I mean, the fact of the matter is, is she is a government employee. That is very different than an, uh, an average citizen. And as a government employee, she has certain responsibilities. And if she doesn't want to uh, do these things that she is responsible for doing under the law, then she has to resign. And if she doesn't want to resign, then other members measures have to be taken. Um, Update, which is licenses have now been issued by deputy clerks, um, but I'm going to tell you all about that later, about kind of, uh, you know, how it got started, what the controversy is, and what's going on now, moving forward into the future. All right, guys, so we have a great show lined up, and of course, if you want to chime in, the number is 212-650-6903. We're going to go on a quick break, where we'll be right back talking about climate change. But, but you made it in a sleazy way. But Selling I got to crack buy some to Jordans. That's the way okay. it is. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of 
Harlem. And guess what we are doing today? We are talking about all sorts of stuff. But if you really want to talk about stuff, you know what you have to do? Check out Scatter Radio, where we are, and our show airs. And if you want to do your own show because you think our show sucks, then go home. <laughs> go home right now. Or you can just create a Scatter Radio account and talk about things on your can own. Can you throw a can't touch this in there? Can't touch this. You see that? This is why they want me back, because because I am diverse and I am dynamic. But guys, we are not here to praise my name, even though my name is awesome and so is my face. We are here because it is time to talk about climate, mother love, and change. But this is not just any kind of climate change conversation. So... Usually when we talk about climate change, we say, oh, my God, something is melting, something is evaporating, elephants are dying, polar bears are losing their skin color, and we have to do something about it. Or sometimes we mix it up and talk about environmental racism, which is a very much real thing. And if you don't believe me, just go look at the ninth, the lower ninth ward after Hurricane Katrina, and you'll see what I was talking about. But this week, we want to mix it up just a little bit for all you folks out there who are at home, just getting home from church, touching on that Bible, or reading Psalms 23. This is about climate change and religion, but not just climate change and religion, it's also about President Obama and Pope Francis, two men from different sides of the world, from two different perspectives, all of a sudden talking about a topic that puts them in the same lane. So let's start with Barack J. Kwan Hussein Obama. As we know, he's dropping a mixtape in 2016 and trying to get signed by G unit records it will not happen because he is not a good enough rapper but while he is still president he has to do his job because hey we elected him to do his job in alaska while talking to other world leaders this man barack jaquan hussein trap god shorty obama said that the time to make changes for climate change is now. It is not 10 years from now. It is not 20 years from now. It is right now. We are seeing the effects of climate change at this moment. And if we do not do something, we are in trouble. And we are pretty much giving our kids a world where they would not have resources. He also said, if you are one of those quote-unquote leaders who does not believe in climate change or wants to ignore the problem, you are doing an injustice and you are unfit to lead. He was saying all of this while trying to get other climate leaders to become more aggressive in the things they do in climate change. He says America, as the world's biggest economy and second biggest CO2 producer, they would accept, they would accept their role and make the proper changes. And you can see an example of that in the Clean Power Plan, which is something the president and the EPA put out to reduce carbon emissions by 2005 levels by the year 2020. And the way he's doing this is by giving states the freedom to cut emissions in their own ways. And if you know about OEAC, you know we fought to make sure that they didn't ignore the black communities like they usually do when doing that. And he also had a historic climate deal with China, where China and he agreed to reduce emissions on on their own and China all of a sudden is re- reducing emissions at a scary pace which some believe is possibly being altered or played around with while their economy plummets even faster and we are still fighting with elected officials who say that God doesn't care about the climate. Funny enough, while they're saying that God doesn't care about the climate, we have the Pope Francis release an 184-page encyclical on climate change. And what does he say about this whole thing on climate change, which some of you guys probably will not believe? Well, this is what he says, guys. Sorry about that. Just going to my notes because for this case, I actually do have to read. He says, the destruction of the human environment is extremely serious, not only because God has entrusted the world to us men and women, but because human life is itself a gift, which must be defended from various forms of debasement. Pope Francis, even though I am a, a heathen, 
is a man that I like a lot, and I think he has a lot of good things going on with him, especially when he links religion, climate change, and income inequality all together and says that big businesses and people who have had the biggest carbon footprint owe poor people an apology and a reimbursement. But we'll get into that later because I'm not smart enough to talk about all this on my own because we all know I'm probably still recovering from all the whiskey I had last night. We have Patrick Collin. He's the executive director of the Francian Action Network. You heard of that? Yeah, he's doing stuff. So anyways, prior to joining FAN, Patrick worked for the, for the um, Diocese of Bridgeport as a manager of advancement and development for the Stanford Catholic Schools and at St. James Parish in Stafford, where he was involved in developing faith formation and social justice programs. If you want to get my eyes perked up and my ears perked up, talk about religion and social justice, because as we know, the civil rights movement, which was led by Martin Luther King and others, was deeply rooted in religion and Christianity and social justice activism. And I'm all about that life. Maybe not the religion part, but that's another conversation. So so anyways, guys, I'm going to stop talking. I want to introduce you to the one, the only, Patrick Callon. Patrick, happy Sunday. Good morning. Morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here and um, uh, talking with you today. Patrick, we're happy to have you here. So, Patrick, I had uh, two liters of iced coffee before I walked in here, so I'm cool. really excited. <laughs> <laughs> I could tell that by your opening dialogue. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I wrote that all last night while also drinking coffee at 3 in the morning. Because, you know, coffee, drink coffee at all times of the night is a totally healthy thing to do, don't you think? Oh, absolutely, yes. Only for uh, you, Stanley. Yes, yes, it's not healthy, guys. Don't do that. So anyways, Patrick, so that we're not just, like, running around the whole place, I want to say that I have, I have had the chance to read the encyclical. And as someone who is, I guess you would say, secular, I was very impressed and touched by the by the Pope's words and his language and the way that he connects the secular and the religious and the science all together to kind of like put forward this really strong argument. So instead of me just running my mouth, I would really like to just have you kind of give us like a backdrop of like what what he was trying to do with the encyclical and how like what you think is important from it. Well, um, thank you. And again, a couple things. Um, what the Pope was trying to do, and let me just first start off by saying. Um, most people don't actually have a clue what an encyclical is. And in fact, most Catholics don't have a clue what an encyclical is. So let me say an encyclical generally is a letter from the Pope to bishops. There's been a lot of encyclicals that have been written. Most of them um, people get, bishops get, a few of the bishops actually read it occasionally, and then it gets put on a shelf and it gets collects dust and theologians debate it every few years about what the meaning of this word or that word is. This is something completely different. First of all, Pope Francis wrote this encyclical to all people. He didn't write it to bishops. He wrote it to all people, and to people of all faiths, and to people of no faith. And so it is a letter to all people in the world. And it's um, rather than a theological document, it's a call to action. Uh, most encyclicals, again, take some issue and discuss it from a theological standpoint. And if you've ever, you know, you said you read this one. I've read this one three times now. I've read a couple of other encyclicals, and I can't understand a word they say. <laughs> this one is so beautifully written and written in such a way that all of us can understand it. So I, I urge people all of the time to just sit down and read this document. But it is one of the most beautiful documents that we've come across. I was ready to go oh. find my cross and say Hail Mary once again. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah don't, don't go overboard. Uh, <laughs> Stanley had a well, come to Jesus moment well reading played, it. Well uh, and, we, and we like those come to Jesus moments, but you know you don't have to go overboard with it, Stanley. It's I okay. Hear you, I hear you. 
All right, so um, quick question for you because we're talking about encyclicals, and we know the Pope has released written this encyclical, and he's talking about climate change. But has have these documents usually been used? To, I guess more or less like have a political stance on issues. Uh, you know, generally they don't. The, the last one it probably did was one that was written uh, sometime around 1890, and it's the one that um, uh, was written all about Catholic social uh, justice, Catholic social teachings. And a lot of this encyclical is based on that previous encyclical of 100 and some odd years ago. Um, as I said, a lot of times they're much more theological and, you know, what's the meaning of this word and that word and how we should view this or view that as Catholics. Um, this one's not really political either, by the way. This is spiritual, and, and there is a difference. It's a call to spiritual action, not necessarily political action, although the two go hand in hand. What would that spiritual action look like? Well, you know, um, if you read the encyclical in paragraph 202 of the encyclical, Pope Francis talks about change and how we all have to change, particularly um, humans, and particularly those of us who live in the North and have lived a, a lifestyle that's well beyond what we should be living. Um, but the change is not necessarily, it, it is things like shutting off your lights or walking or biking or you know, eating less meat. Those are all important things. But it really is much more of a transformational change. So we have to change how we view ourselves in relation to all of God's creation, in relation to each other and to all of God's creation. And, you know, I know in your um, when you started out, you talked a little bit about um, environmental justice and the um, really uh, dramatic effect that climate change has had on poor communities. And it's not just climate change that's had that effect. Um, you know, they're doing studies now on fracking, for instance, and they're talking about how um, they had some early data that have shown fracking in communities surrounding areas where fracking takes place there's about a 30% increase in miscarriages. Wow. So, you know, for and, and these are preliminary data, so, so we have to be careful about it, but those, this is what the preliminary data shows. And so, you know, for people who claim to be right to life and then go out and support fracking, well, you can't really be right to life and support fracking if it's causing women to have miscarriages. That's such a great um, point, Patrick. Uh, um, so, you I mean, that's, that leads right into what I was going to ask you about, which is it seems like there's sort of this disconnect, this hypocrisy between not everybody, but at least some people on the what I'll call the Christian right um, and between the the church. Um, and I think you even saw that here a little bit of when the instical came out. I felt like there was sort of kind of blowback from some people in America that were like, oh, well, you know, um, I don't believe that climate change is real, and, you know, I, I'm having trouble reconciling my religious beliefs with my, you know, and what the Catholic Church is saying with my own personal politics. Why do you think there is such a disconnect between the Christian right here in America and sort of the place that the Roman Catholic Church is occupying with, you know, we have a moral obligation uh, to our planet, to our fellow humans, to, you know, life, as you point out. Um, and what does the Roman Catholic Church expect or the Pope expect this encyclical to have on uh, the membership? Well, um, first off, I, I, let me point out that the Pope's encyclical is not a new teaching. This is a teaching that's been a part of Catholic teaching and Christian teaching since Jesus. This is what Jesus taught us. And, you know, if you go back to St. Francis of Assisi, who Pope Francis took his name after, there's uh, stories about how St. Francis would go out and um, talk to the birds and talk to the uh, animals and talk to the trees, and people would ask him, 
why are you doing this? And he would say, God told me to preach the gospel to all my brothers and sisters, and I consider these all my brothers and sisters. So there is this disconnect between our relationship to each other and our relationship to all of creation. We're living in a world of separation, where we consider ourselves separate from all of creation. And until we change that, that sense of, of who we are, and again, go back to where we're connected to all of creation, we're connected to everything, then there's going to be a, um, you know, uh, the, that disconnect that you're talking about. And again, you know, part of the problem with, with um, a lot of folks in this country is that they've turned to worship money. Right. Not, right. Um, you know, and, and, you know, Matthew 6 says you can't worship both God and money. Isn't that one of the seven and deadly sins? Greed. Greed, yes. Amen to that. And let me also point out, because uh, I know you, you mentioned at the beginning about Martin Luther King Jr., and Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the first people to make the connection between environmental issues and racism. So again, this is not a new concept either, the idea of racism and um, environmental, um, you know, it's, it's no um, secret, it's, you know, not anything that, no, no wonder that we build our coal-fired plants in inner cities. Mm-hmm. We don't build them out in the suburbs. And if you look at, again, you look at the asthma rates among inner-city children, mostly young black children, you'll find the asthma rates are much higher than they are out in the suburbs. One out of six nationally, one out of four in Harlem and the Bronx. Absolutely, yes. And again, you know, and, and again, you can look at what happened after Hurricane Sandy. You mentioned that again, and you can see that, um, you know, the, the wealthier communities, they were right in there to fix those up. Um, the poorer communities, people sat in their apartments for, you know, a week sometimes without anybody even coming to see if they were okay. So that's Again, what Pope Francis is talking about in the inequality and the lack of connectiveness to all of us. Right. Guys, if you're just tuning in, we have Patrick Corlan on the line. He is executive director of the France Skin Action Network. And you can call in at 212-650-6903. Patrick, so I wanted to talk about, um, you know, exactly what we're talking about and say that as a believer, I actually go to a church where my pastor puts so much emphasis on us as people of faith to take and move when it comes to social justice movements. And that's why I definitely feel and was very happy that Pope Francis has been so outspoken when it comes to climate change from a believer's perspective. And I kind of wanted to ask you about what you think about revelations in the New Testament when it talks about the apocalypse and it talks about how the seasons won't change. Now, me as a believer, I always sort of connected the dots to this, to climate change, because if we look at what's going on in Alaska, that actually suffering from a record-setting warming trend for the last several yeah. years and they've had the longest summer ever in 2015 um if i'm not if i'm correct so did you like is that just me coming to my own interpretation or do you see a, an interpretation of like the apocalypse being linked to climate change um yourself well, uh, that's a great point and um you know i've actually thought of that as well and, you know, the apocalypse is all about the, the battle between good and evil. And um, I often tell people, I think we're in the middle of a time where there's a spiritual reawakening. And so there's this whole spiritual movement. If you look at the Occupy movement, for instance, and I know you guys are very familiar with that, 
And um, I, in my travels around the U.S., I would often stop and stay at some of the Occupy sites. And one of the things I discovered at each of these Occupy sites is the first thing they did when they occupied a site was create a space for prayer. So they'd have sometimes it was a tent, sometimes it was a little, just a few blankets on the ground, and that would be a space for people to go and pray in whatever manner they, they felt comfortable and wanted to pray. So the whole Occupy movement was a spiritual movement. It wasn't a political movement. And that's what I see happening. And I see we're, we're, we're kind of in this spiritual fight for our souls. And, and it's a fight between greed, power, money, versus um, the connectiveness of all of us. You know, as a Christian, and, and you know this, the, the most frequent prayer that Christians pray is the Our Father. It's the one prayer that Jesus taught us. Lord's Prayer? And in that, the, the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. And, and in that prayer it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, you know, what, what do you think? I often ask people, do you think in heaven God would find it acceptable for us to destroy mountains, for us to destroy... Um, the forest land, do you think that would be acceptable in heaven? And if it's not acceptable in heaven, why do we think God would find it acceptable here on earth? Wow. So we're in the middle of that kind of a battle um, between the, you know, those two forces. I think that's absolutely right on that. Wow. Thank you so much for that, Patrick. So we do have to go on a quick break. Please hold with us for one second. <laughs> when we get back, we will continue this conversation. I think I can. we can all agree it's a great conversation. And guys, if you are listening, you can call in when we get back. Our number is 212-650-6903. Until then, let's go back to the 1990s right a little bit quick. I did. Yeah. I did Snapchat. Well, you, you and I think it. that climate change is our enemy. We do have enemies. Climate you, change Alyssa, is our enemy. Yes. Well, we are back on Leadership Voice. We heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. I would like to say two things. One, we are talking about climate change within the context of the Pope's encyclical on climate change, where he talks about the role of Christians and Catholics and people of all religions to address climate change, and we have a wonderful guest on the line. We have Patrick Hall on. He is the executive, not the assistant, the <laughs> executive director of the Franciscan Action Network, or FAN, if you want to use an acronym. And we would love to continue the conversation we were having, but I know Alyssa had a really great question, so I'm going to throw it on to her. Alyssa, show them what you got. All right. So, you know, it seems to me, and I think we've all sort of touched on this, um, but I'm just going to come out and say it, which is that some people um, that are Catholic have sort of strayed from this idea that, you know, the church's teachings are about morality and about helping your fellow man and caring about the planet, as we just were talking about before we went to break. And, and you know, our guest rightly pointed it out as far as I'm concerned about, you know, how God would not have been impressed um, with, uh, you know, some of the things we're doing here on earth to satisfy our, our own need for goods and services and, you know, other things like energy and, and greed. Um, but my question is, why do we think some of these people, I'm not going to say everybody, why do we think so many of these people who consider themselves to be right-leaning or conservative, but also also Catholic have or sort Christian. of, or Christian, have sort of strayed from this idea? And how how do we sort of bring them back in and say, no, this is what the Catholic Church 
teaches and, you know, we, how do we change their minds and convince them maybe not to become liberal, but at least to recognize that climate change is a problem and that it's something that they should care about as a moral and spiritual person and somebody who cares about religious doctrine? Well, uh, wow, that was uh, kind of an interesting short question that um, um, I could actually speak on for about the next six hours if you wanted to. Um, so a couple of points on that. One is um, the straying that you're talking about probably happened somewhere in the 5th century at the Council of Trent when Constantinople, and when Constantine, not Constantinople, Constantine took over the Catholic Church and turned it into a church of the state and a church of the powerful and the wealthy. And from that point on, the Church began moving away and away and away from the teachings of Jesus. So we have to get back to what Jesus actually taught, if we're Christians. And, you know, Jesus taught us to love one another, to care for one another. Jesus taught us that we're all part of creation. Creation is part of us. St. Bonaventure, who was a 13th century Franciscan saint, taught us that God is reflected in all of creation, and all of creation reflects God. Uh, all of creation is, God is part of all creation. And so if we're destroying creation, then we're destroying part of God. So we're never going to change people's minds. We have to change their hearts. Thank you very and much we, for that. It's very true. Yeah. Patrick, we spend, spend way too much time trying to change people's minds with scientific arguments, and what we have to do is really pray if we're Christians, ask people to really look into their hearts, and because, you know, I've had this discussion with a lot of people, Catholic, mostly Republican congressmen, who have said, yes, I know climate change is real. I know we have to do something about it. But if I say something publicly about this, then I'm going to lose all my funding. I'm going to be primaried. And so they're more interested in holding on to their power than they are in doing the, the moral and ethical thing. Very That's a great true. point. One of the things I really like about the encyclical is that the Pope doesn't just use, um, you know, Catholic ideology or Christian ideologies. He uses like he uses um, like I guess language and, and viewpoints from a bunch of different religions. Yes, so he does. He, he mentioned I think he mentioned some Buddhism in there. He um, references a lot of um, Islamic um, philosophers and prophets. And could you talk? Can you talk about that? What was his process yeah. behind doing that? Well, you know, this encyclical took a while to write. It wasn't. A, it didn't happen in two weeks. It took about a year to come together. And, and Pope Francis has been meeting with a lot of religious leaders from all different faiths, to really understand um, what their faith tradition teaches about this. And, and one of the things that we've discovered, we all, if we look at this, is all of our faith traditions teach us the same thing. There's not really a lot of difference. If you read the Quran, and I, you know, I've read parts of the Quran, and it talks about caring for creation. It talks about all of us being brothers and sisters, the same way that the uh, Gospels do and the Torah does. And if you look at the Hindu um, spiritual books, they all say the same thing. So this is one of the things that Pope Francis was really interested in. And, and, and again, he gets this from St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis of Assisi, who was a 12th century saint, um, would go off at times and, and meet with, hang out with Muslims, because he wanted to learn more about the Muslim faith. Um, there's a whole story of St. Francis and the Sultan during the Crusades, where they came together, both put everything at risk, to try to bring about peace and understanding of each other's uh, uh, religion and, and um, faith. And so you see that Pope Francis takes a lot of that. He also writes the encyclical in a language I had said earlier. Most encyclicals are written in a deep theological language. 
his is written in everyday language for everyday people to understand. And it, 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 that's done on purpose so that it doesn't have to be. We don't have to wait for it. As Catholics, we don't have to wait for our bishops to interpret it for us. Um, we can go and read it ourselves, which is, you know, the teachings of Jesus. We can just go read those teachings ourselves and understand them. We don't need other people to tell us what they mean. And that's what this encyclical is, is written. That's funny so, you mentioned that, because um, we were just having a discussion off-air during a break in which we were talking about some of the arguments coming from the right, and they were saying that a lot of the, the text in here gets lost in translation because it was originally written in Latin. I'm not, I'm not sure if that was the case, but I wanted to get your, your input your input. Oh, no, no, none of the text is lost in translation. I can pretty much guarantee you that. And I, you know, know people who helped write this, helped draft this, and I know people who um, did the translation. And that's one of the things they made sure of, is that the translations of this encyclical are accurate. There is nothing that's lost in the translation. And by the way, I'm not, I don't know where they get the idea that the original was written in Latin, because um, Pope Francis doesn't really speak much Latin. He speaks Spanish. So... The original would have been written in Spanish and then translated to Latin because that's the official language of the Church, and then translated back to all of these other languages. Um, Patrick, I have a question because House Speaker John Boehner, who is a Republican, is also a Catholic. He invited Pope Francis to speak um, and address uh, Congress for the first time ever, and that'll be coming up in a few more weeks. And I'm sort of thinking, like, when he invited Pope Francis and, you know, they set this whole thing up, it had to have been way before um, the Pope um, released his encyclical and then started really coming out and talking about climate change. So now I'm like, do you think that there might be some underlying tension when the Pope actually does come and address Congress? Um, I've heard people like Rick Santorum saying things like, well, I need the Pope to stay out of science. He's not a scientist and he shouldn't be talking about climate change. And I'm like, and I'm like, he is a scientist. (laughs) And Rick, you're not a scientist either. And you're actually preaching things that go against 99% of what all scientists worldwide say. So now I'm really, really looking forward to the Pope addressing Congress in a few more weeks because he seems like he's just going to say what he believes in his heart. And he truly believes that believers and Catholics should be addressing climate change. And we know that the Republicans in Congress don't. What do you think about that? I, you know, I, we, we often talk about this. I work in Washington, D.C. I live in Connecticut, but my office is in Washington, D.C. And we often talk about it, and we say, what in God's name was John Boehner thinking when he invited Pope Francis to come and speak to Congress? I can't imagine what was it, his thought process was, because Pope Francis is not going to pull punches. That's the one thing we know about him is he's going to say what he believes and what he's passionate about. And he's going to challenge people uh, in Congress to really look into their hearts and to really, you know, it's going to be a call to are you really a Catholic or not, and, and stop pretending you're a Catholic if you don't believe in caring for all of creation. That's what the call is going to be. He's also going to frame it, I believe, around the issue of uh, racism, justice, um, income inequality, and um, he's going to talk about immigration and okay. his address to Congress. He's going to go out and really um, challenge the members of Congress, particularly after what's happening with uh, the Syrian refugees, he's going to challenge them on our refugees from, from Guatemala and El Salvador and Mexico. And what can we do about that? Not I can't wait. Walls, but, but to break down walls. So it'll be interesting. And, you know, there's going to be a ton of people there. We're, we're expecting something like 350,000 people on the mall. Mm. Um, 
we're actually, my organization and several others are getting together and we're getting Jumbotron so people can come and um, uh, hear the Pope speak. We're going to have people like Reverend Yearwood from the Hip Hop Caucus. I'm sure you guys have had him on your show. If you haven't, you should. Um, but he's going to be uh, one of our speakers. Um, and so, you know, we're going to have these speakers talk before the Pope speaks to talk about not just climate change as a separate issue, but how climate change is a symptom of, like all of these issues are, the symptom of our living in a world of separation versus living in a world of connectiveness. Patrick, we are running out of time, but I just wanted you to talk, touch very briefly on the Pope's discussion on income inequality and the, the encyclical, because that was probably my favorite part. <laughs> well, I, I, again, and he's, it's just not the first time he said this, but he talks about how, um, you know, and this is part of Catholic social teachings. I mean, the Catholic Church was one of the uh, founders of the labor movement in this country, if you go back and look at the history of the labor movement and people like Dorothy Day. And, and the idea that, you know, it's, it's not anti-capitalism, but it's anti-runaway um, capitalism, so that people are just considered assets to be thrown away at will or to cut down until, you know, cut their salaries, cut their wages so that we can make more profit. That goes so far against the teachings of Jesus, and that's what Pope Francis is talking about. I mean, I, you know, I can't simplify it any more than that. And it's not a political, it's not socialism, it's not communism, it's not capitalism. It's just a basic statement that this is what Jesus teaches us as Christians, that we're all in this together, we're all connected. And, and you know, it's, I always find it fascinating, if you've read the Gospels, um, and that Jesus was tempted three times, and each time he uh, avoided a temptation. And, you know, he wasn't tempted with sex or anything like that. He was tempted with wealth and power. And that's where, you know, the, the temptations come is wealth and power, and that's where the corruption comes. So he will be talking about that. Beautifully said. Yes, Patrick, thank you very, very much for that. So we are pretty much out of time, but before we let you go, I'd like to let you, I'd like if you can let the listeners know how they can learn more about your organization and how they can see the Pope when he speaks if there are going to be any jumbotrons um, in Harlem. <laughs> well, the Pope is coming to East Harlem. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Well, you can, you know, you can find more about my organization at franciscanaction.org. You can also go to the uh, Global Catholic Climate Movement website, which we're a co-founder of. Um, People are, uh, you know, you can certainly watch C-SPAN and you'll see the Pope uh, speaking. If you're down in D.C., and I'd invite you guys to come down and do a radio show down in D.C. if you are interested, both when the Pope's speaking or before. Of course we are. A whole group, group of faith leaders are going to be uh, doing a 10-day hunger fast, including myself, leading up to the Pope's speak. There's going to be a 24-hour prayer vigil on the mall in Washington, D.C., and that's going to be followed by a 24-hour prayer vigil in New York City. So a lot of those things are happening. People can, again, most of that you can get off of our website, and then um, it'll lead you to other websites that are planning some of these uh, activities. Um, you know, and please come join us. If you can't come down to D.C. to do participate in our Hunger Fast, fast for one day to support the Pope and to really um, ask for the climate. It's called an, a global move to fast for the climate. We're urging people the first day of each month to fast. Things like that are happening. It's a great coming together. As I said earlier, there's a spiritual reawakening that's happening, and it's so exciting. I'm so excited to be alive in this period of time, and I'm so hopeful because of the Pope's message.
Patrick, thank you so much. This was a very wonderful conversation, and I think we are all pumped up and excited about the things that we learned today and hopefully the listeners learned. Um, we will definitely make sure we get back to you, but once again, thank you for calling in today. So, guys, I'm, I'm not really going to sit here and preach to you or give you another long TED talk about why climate change is a thing that we need to be focusing on. I think that Patrick did just that. What I will tell you to do is to read the encyclical if you have not done so already, and and then have a conversation with your friends. And if you are someone who is religious and you believe in God, I think this is something that you really need to pay attention to. But to close it out, I'm just going to play a quick clip from the newsroom that I guess puts into perspective just how serious this issue with climate is. So guys, enjoy. Just so we know what we're talking about, if you were a doctor and we were the patient, what's your prognosis? A thousand years, 2,000 years? A person has already been born who will die due to catastrophic failure of the planet. What did he just say? Okay, can you uh, expand on that? Sure. Um, The last time there was this much CO2 in the air, the oceans were 80 feet higher than they are now. Two things you should know. Half the world's population lives within 120 miles of an ocean. And the other? Humans can't breathe underwater. You're saying the situation's dire. Not exactly. Um, Your house is burning to the ground, the situation's dire. Your house has already burned to the ground. Situation's over. So what can we do to reverse this? I guess for now you've got the last to laugh. WHCR 94.3 FM, New York. Um, Stanley, so you're going to do that hunger strike, that 10 day hunger fast? Oh man. I, I, do... I, I, I'm going to go for it. In solidarity with the church, I will do a one day whiskey strike. <laughs> I have to, I have to do a one day fast for Yom Kippur. So I'll oh, just nice. combine the, uh, Jewish day of atonement. <laughs> Dude, hey. your, your mom's going to be so happy. Oh my, I'm so proud of you, Alyssa. You are cheating. No, listen, you know what? I do a lot of activism, a lot of sh- social justice type stuff. But one of the few things I don't do is fast because I get really hangry and it's not cool. You get oh, hangry when yeah, you I fast? Know, you know, that's gets the same way. Yeah, I get really hangry. And then, no, I honestly, I get sick. Like I get mm. really nauseous and stuff because I have to eat. Like yeah. my blood sugar drops really low. Oh. Okay. I think most people. Well, Sorry. guys, if you're just tuning in, this is Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. This is Stanley Fritz here with Selena Hill and Alyssa Fuchs. We just finished having an amazing conversation about the Pope's encyclical on climate change, and we had the help of Patrick Corlon. I keep butchering his name. Thank goodness he's not here to send me to the woodshed because he probably would. No, he's a really nice guy. And he's he was the executive director of the Franciscan Action Network. We learned a lot. I think everyone here is still pumped up on that. But now it is time to talk about the news, Alyssa. Yeah, so speaking of the news and keeping with our religious theme, I have some local news for you. Uh-huh. So um, our favorite church, the, the Attila Church up here in Harlem, oh, um, who's constantly you know in the news, mostly for the signs about that are very anti-gay and mm-hmm. Uh, getting people in the neighborhood mad because their kids have to pass them by, as Selena pointed out, and also the great video of the lesbian woman who shows up and asks uh, to be stoned and says she's there for her stoning, mm-hmm. um, if you didn't see that like a year ago. Anyway, so the church actually just got fined $1,850, and they may get fined even further because they got found guilty of five Environmental Control Board regulations for making illegal alterations to the church without getting the necessary permits that 
are acquired by the city of New York, and that includes installing that large sign that they use to write those anti-gay messages. Now, they see it even though they got fined as a win because they were told that they could leave the sign up and retroactively pay to seek the permits, but if they do not do that, they are actually going to get fined even further for continuously violating the law, which is similar to something we're going to talk about later in the show during the quickie about saying, well, I don't have to, you know, I'm going to use my religion to justify why I don't have to do something that I otherwise have to do in secular life. And in this situation, it would be get the correct permits if you want to build stuff on your church. This is Um, not um, good. He's probably at the church right now saying that the government is trying to persecute him because he tells the truth. and He's going to raise that 1800 plus a little extra in like 10 minutes. I'm not happy about this. I think somebody finally snitched on him. I think that because there's been so much controversy and people within the neighborhood and across the nation have been speaking out about his, the anti-gay signs that he posts right in front of the church. I think somebody was just like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to look a little further and you're going to get in trouble. He actually, the violations includes removing the second floor balcony without permission, replacing the ironwork, installing a marble fence on Lenox Avenue and putting up a new door on 123rd Street along with the church sign and of course he has come out and said that him and other churches in Harlem who have similar signs are being singled out because of their anti-gay messages Um, but I really don't think that's what this is about this is about very simple thing which is you have to have certain working permits if you don't have them you're going to get fined when he was just talking crap about Barack Obama and Michelle Obama nobody was saying nothing when he said Barack Obama long leg mac daddy from a white mother (laughs) and then he said Michelle Obama should be shooting free throws in the WNBA and everybody was like, wow, he's crazy. Oh, well. Right. No, <laughs> it, it, it's true. Um, all right, guys. So speaking of other crazy things that happened mm-hmm. uh, in Texas, in San Antonio, San Antonio, actually, there, there was this Hispanic man who became a victim of a police shooting. So there's actually a video of him with his hands high up in the air. He didn't even have a shirt on. And you see two deputies open fire and fatally shoot him. Now, the bystander who actually took the video, if you watch the video, you see that you can't see his left arm, the victim's left arm, like moments before the shooting. So I think the police are going to say, well, oh, he was reaching for something in, with his left arm because you can't really see it. But the witnesses say, no, he wasn't. <laughs> I, You know, I saw it with my own eyes. His hands were up in the air. Wow. So, so far, um, San Antonio, San Antonio, they actually did take immediate action after the video was released and they have installed they've invested one million dollars so that all police officers within the department will start wearing body cameras because the deputies didn't have body cameras and if they had the body cameras on we could have saw a better view of what exactly happened and actually i did a quickie uh, i think it was two or three weeks ago now on the issue of body cameras and all the issues surrounding that with respect to the new york city pilot program so if you want more information about body cameras and kind of the pros of body cameras and the cons, definitely check out our archive shows, uh, hit the podcast, uh, um, maybe hit Scatter Radio, it's probably up there as well, but hit, uh, you know, fi- you can definitely find that episode and you should definitely check it out, it's a great segment. And if you just want to call in and let us know how you feel about this or other news stories, please, number is 212-650-6903, but guys, I want to talk about, sorry, I didn't mean to laugh so much, I want to talk about something that actually happened um, last week. And I'm a little late, guys, but um, Jeb Bush calling undocumented people anchor babies. 
You didn't hear about that? No, I heard about that. I, I which actually got less traction than the fight yeah. that him and Stephen Colbert got in. He got to a fight with Stephen Colbert. Yeah, because he what? was fundraising off of his appearance on Stephen Colbert's show. He told people that he was going to give away a ticket and fly them to New York to attend Stephen Colbert's show if they donated three dollars to his campaign. And Stephen Colbert got really mad and was like, "You can't fundraise off my first show and ask people for money. And if you're going to do that, like, I want a cut of it." So then Stephen <laughs> Colbert started a fundraiser, basically not. <laughs> For his campaign, but said if you donate a dollar, then I will, you know, potentially give away a ticket to the show, and I will donate all the money to the Wounded Warrior or this other mm. program for veterans. Yeah. And then Jeb, of course, fired back saying, "Okay, well, we'll lower it to a dollar, and I will match your donation to the veterans thing." Oh, but like, God. still didn't still said that they were going to try and fundraise off of it. So you know what? Here's what I have to say about that, which is Stephen Colbert, especially now that he's not. Going to be in character anymore, and he's doing the night. You know, that show historically, David Letterman has had the ability to make you or break you Mm -hmm. as a presidential candidate. That was really not a good move on top of the anchor baby. He should have just said, Sorry, I'm getting cable. And you know, should we start calling Donald Trump's wives anchor wives? They come here to get their citizenship. I think think that's inappropriate. (laughs) No, I mean, based with his, I'm not saying I'm saying that. I mean, people have been saying that because of Donald Trump's rhetoric about. Immigration. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, speaking of immigration and anchors, there was this Latina news anchor who's been getting so much hate because she decides to pronounce Spanish words in Spanish. So we all what? know that... So we all know that Mesa is the third largest city in Arizona, and it's been you're supposed to pronounce it Mesa, but the na- the white natives call it Mesa. So she's been saying Mesa and Grand Canyon, or you know, with the accent, and she's getting so much hate mail. So she actually decided this past week to address them, and she did it very unapologetically and very eloquently, and said, "You know what, guys? I've lived in Spain. I grew up in Colombia. I've traveled internationally, and it." has broadened my perspective on words and language and what I try to do um, with my position is pronounce the words how they're supposed to be pronounced and plus I'm Spanish so and she kind of said get over it and I was just like yes Good for her. Yes. White people get mad at a lot of stuff. <laughs> like when we were at the movies the other day? Yes. Can we talk about that for like yes. a half a second? So, it's sort of like a news story. So guys, we went to go see Straight Outta Compton um, on Thursday, and we're in there hanging out, and I guess someone was smoking no, a No, somebody was smoking. Someone was smoking a cigarette in the theater, and then some guy's like, stop smoking your effing cigarette. God. So <laughs> and then Stanley was like, so man, white people are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it just spoke to like the sense of entitlement that he had. Like me as a black woman, I was just like, oh man, someone's smoking. Let me continue to watch the movie. But he was like, no man, you put that out right now. And I was like, whoa. I mean, he was right, but like, you don't do that. If you did that in Harlem, he would have had a situation. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking like, if I was at like a majority black theater, you how would that have went down? You can't do that in Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson <laughs> come out that spring and show you something. No, but For real. You shouldn't smoke in theaters, and I think we all agreed with his sentiment. But it's just like, bro, how do you how do you think this would have like moved forward? Like, if this person was really about that life and pressed you, how do you think that would have went? And the person just smoked the entire movie. It felt like they smoked like two cigarettes at a time after the person said Yo, that. Yo, get an electronic cigarette for those situations. Yeah. It's not that difficult. Yes. You can like nobody's gonna notice if you're puffing on an e-cig because yeah. it like doesn't smell. My friend was smoking one at that theater. I won't say who it was, but anyways, oh. guys. Uh, <laughs> uh, speaking. Know. Speaking of people who make a scene for no reason. Rapper Nicki Minaj at the oh, VMAs. Stanley, yes. that wasn't nice. Yes, but it's true. So 
at the VMAs, as you guys know, um, Nicki Minaj was very upset when she did not get an award for her Anaconda video. But didn't she? She won an award for Anaconda. Yeah, no, but no. she didn't win Best Video, I think it was. She wasn't nominated, she for, nominated best for Best Video. And, and right. then she went on social media and she began to say, oh, um, I'm upset about this. If I was white and skinny, people would like it. And I'm tired of the way that the media interprets black women's bodies. And Taylor Swift just jumped all up in her mentions like, why are you talking about me? I didn't do anything. But they worked out their beef. The real yes. beef at the VMA seemed was, to be between her and Miley. I'm trying to get there. So Miley was asked about it in a New York Times interview, and she said, well, like, I feel like Nicki Minaj made it about herself, and I didn't like the tone that she used to do it. And I think that Nicki Minaj is mean, and you don't have to do that. So Nicki She Min- said the word mean? Yeah. Wow. So Nicki Minaj took exception to this, and when she got her award... Um, in front of thousands of people, she said, well, I want to talk about the little B who has something to say about me. What's good, Miley? Miley? what's good? Yeah. A lot of On, people were talking about, though, whether or not that was staged. What do you think? It wasn't staged, apparently. And if if it was staged, okay, that's one thing. But if it wasn't staged, can I just say that, first of all, Nicki Minaj always claims she's from Southside Jamaica, Queens. She's from the hood. And everyone know. well, I don't know about you guys know, but hood rules state you get no points for picking a fight with somebody you know you can beat. Mm-hmm. And you also get no points for picking a fight in a place you know the person is not going to clap back. That's like the, the dude that was in the theater going, oh, stop effing smoking. You weren't expecting him to clap back. You don't get points for being bold. Yeah, that would have no, been a good fight, when though. No one's, don't say that those are adults. <laughs> when no one's going to like talk back to you. If you really had an issue with it, why didn't you press her backstage? And then also, Nicki Minaj goes to awards and straight up does not know what she's getting awards for. We witnessed this, Selena, at the BET Awards, where she straight up disrespects the institution and the award. And now she's mad and wants to bring up social justice issues when she never talks about them? I mean, well, the thing is, I'm, I kind of appreciated the fact that she did bring the issue to light and press Miley no, in front of no, everyone. She, she won an award for Anaconda. She won yeah, but Best she, Female Video for that no, video. No, it was like Best Rapper. It was oh, Best no, Hip Hop right, Video, best, not Best, best you right, Best Hip Hop Video. Uh, I apologize. Is, you know, big difference. And the thing is, with, with the, when she addressed Miley Cyrus, I think Miley had handled it very well. And she was like, congratulations, oh, Nikki. Yeah. Yeah, she kind of said, like, Nick, if you want to talk, we can do this offline. Like an adult. Yeah, Nikki she Nikki is 33 years old. Well, Miley Cyrus is 22. She does, she does everything for and attention. Then, and then also, <laughs> like, she didn't talk about social justice issues. She made it about herself when she right. complained she on did. Twitter. Yes, which she I did. Oh, go, go on. I was going to say, speaking of somebody that makes it about themselves, did you catch the Kanye rant that went on for yeah, forever, people, ever? Yeah, and people are praising him. This guy's talking about, oh, we got to save our kids from materialism. Then he sells $700 sneakers. Are you serious? Well, the highlight of the rant is when he announced that she's running for president. But it was everything that came before that. It was just, like, ridiculous. It started out really good. Yeah. It was like him and Taylor Swift were sort of apologizing to each other, and she was saying, you know, I really like Kanye. I've always liked Kanye since his college dropout album. And, you know, like we had our beef, but it's over now. And like, you know, then he came up and he was like, you know, appreciative of her. But then he like went into some, I don't even know what he was talking he had a about. And then moment. it like kept, kept going on and it kept going on. And then he was like, yeah, I'm a little high right now. <laughs> and then you're like, what is going on? Yeah. In fact, when I rewatched it, because I watched it the first time and then I re-recorded it because it cut the last like five minutes of it off and I wanted yeah. to like get the whole thing. And they actually cropped <laughs> his speech in the re-recorded version. They, yeah. like, cropped out part of it, and they cropped out the whole beginning where he's just standing on stage and oh, he's, like, yeah. exasperated and he can't figure out what to say. Um, like, they cropped all of that because it was just, like, it ran so long. And when you were watching it live, you were like, okay, like, I think he's making some good points here and there, but, like, why what is, he is talking about? Yeah, like, what is going on well, right now? Well, I appreciate Kanye because he's authentic. And the fact that he took five minutes just walking, pacing back and forth to get his thoughts together, then to spit some incoherent rant 
it just was another Kanye moment that goes down in history. And and what what happened? I hate to interrupt you, but Miss Deborah has a really good news story she wants to share. Miss Deborah, please let your voice be heard. Hi guys, how you doing? Hi, Miss Deborah. Uh, what about Idris Elba? I think she's talking about when the Anthony gr- Horowitz. Yeah, the writer for um, James Bond. Who's he now said, in charge of writing James Bond fiction? Yeah, he said that he was too street to play 007. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know what? This is I, I need to run because I have something to do. I don't even have the radio on. You know, people of color need to come together and write their own stories. You want to be a spy? Be your own spy and write your own stuff. And create your own stuff. Then you don't have to worry about people saying they're sorry. Let him go ahead and say what he wants to say. You know what it is? When I look at this last, I I swear, and I don't have anything against this last James Bond, I really don't even remember him. I don't remember his name. You put somebody in here like this after the last James Bond, it's just like making that other person like just, it's like erasing him. This is not a man that you're going to forget. Yeah. Oh. This is not a man you're going to forget. And I had seen him get an award one time. And when he was on stage and his accent, which is British, uh, people, uh, I-, I swear to God, the guy that used to play, he played a woman, um, Tootsie. What's his name? Tootsie? Yeah, the guy who used to play Tootsie. Oh, okay. In the movie. They put the camera directly on him and his other little minions at the table. And they seemed to be, they, I don't know why they thought it was, I don't know if they thought that he was faking his accent, mm-hmm. but, you know, they were very, they looked very condescending. And he was basically thanking people and he thanked his, his kid or whatever. And then he left the stage. I think he would be magnificent. Thank right. you very much for that, Ms. Deborah. He definitely went. And Ms. Deborah, though I agree wholeheartedly that people of color should create and write their own stories and award shows to appreciate each other, I still think that it was wrong for anyone to make a stereotypical comment, especially when an actor has so much credential and so much talent, and you're just saying it based on the color of his skin. Is but... he calling him street because of, like, um, because of... <laughs> he's a, he's what British! That, what's that show that like... white people love? Which one? Melissa, the Which show one? The, about Baltimore. White people love this show. The, uh, the Wire. Yes, there we go, because he was in The Wire. Like, is that why? Like, it's, is... It, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense. But there's another thing that doesn't make sense, and I, I wanted to bring it up, because last week we spoke about gun violence and ways to prevent it. And, again, there's another incident that happened just this past week. This 11-year-old boy was home alone with his four-year-old sister and he supposedly um supposedly there was an intruder who was trying to break into his house around 2 30 p.m in the afternoon and the intruder happened to be 16 years old so after like two or three attempts to try to get into the house he apparently like walked through the front door because it was um unlocked and the 11 year old boy shot him and then he said well he was trying to break in but witnesses are saying um that's not what happened they actually were speaking to each other he approached him and it might have been over an iPhone but what the cops are saying is where was the mother where were the parents and why did he have access to this gun if you're gonna buy a firearm and you have a legal permit you should put it in a safe place where children do not have access they, I just don't get the common sense like how do you six, miss that the 16 year old yes dead? he the 11 year old boy killed the 16 year old boy and he happened to be his like not his neighbor but he lived in a neighborhood Yeah, no, I mean, uh, listen, I think the point, the salient point is if you're a parent, like, you know what, 
a lot of parents teach their, teach their children how to use firearms. And, you know, in some respects, if the guy was actually trying to break in his house, then there might have been a good argument for self-defense. But I think the bigger point is why does your 11-year-old have access to a firearm when you're not home? Um, I mean, and obviously we could get into a whole debate about whether he should or shouldn't and whether or not, you know, if somebody really was trying to break in and your 11-year-old doesn't have access to the firearm that he knows how to use, um, you know, whether that works to his disadvantage. But, you know, I actually wanted, before we go on a break, bring up another story about guns, uh, which is a Florida man designed a gun that he's calling the quote-unquote Crusader assault rifle, and he put a cross on it and some Christian wording and says that because of that, no Muslim terrorists will use this gun because as soon as they pick up the gun, I don't know, they'll go on fire and start burning up like a burning bush or something. I don't know. To, but basically, he is selling this gun on the uh, auspices that Muslims won't use this gun because there's a cross on it, which is just ridiculous. He is aggressively stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, the stupid runs deep. Seriously, guys, we've got to go on a quick break. When we get back, we'll be talking about the crisis, the refugee crisis, and we have a very special guest to help us with that conversation. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. What? That I was making fun of her. <laughs> All the time. Um, at brunch? Yes, I would. Brunch I can't drinking. afford to brunch, but I can go. If you pay for him, I'll pay for him. Ooh, All right, guys. Yeah. We're back. Stanley is done making fun of me for the moment. <laughs> Never that. Just for the moment. Even Alyssa laughed. She's like, are you kidding me? I know, right? We're well, just getting started. I know, right? All right, guys. So... Yeah. Uh, speaking of just getting started, we're actually starting a new segment. And guys, if you're just tuning in, my name is Selena Hill. I'm here with Stanley Fritz, who's on the PC ones and twos, and Alyssa Fuchs, who is our legal correspondent slash attorney slash she will lawyer you if you say something wrong. Probably. So, <laughs> um, all right. So there's something that's very, very important that we need to talk about. That's just frankly not getting enough attention and enough enough recognition. And um, I'm not gonna lie, one of the things that made me pay attention to this issue was a heart-wrenching photo of a two-year-old Syrian boy who was drowned while trying to migrate to Europe. Now, in the photo, he's laying face down on the beach, and he's dead. He's dead. He drowned. And it turns out that his father was, well, his father, his mother, and his 11-year-old older brother they were all traveling from Syria as refuge as refugees because, as we know, Syria has been um, engulfed in an ongoing civil war for the last four years, and they were escaping this poverty-stricken, war-torn, war-torn uh, country. And while they were doing that, they were on a very dangerous route through the Mediterranean, and it happens that they were on a boat, and the boat, I think it, um, it capsized, and it turned over, and only the father survived. And he literally watched his two baby boys die in his hand, turned around and saw his wife floating like a balloon. And then the little boy washed up on shore and it just this little boy's body and that image on that turkish beach is just a symbol of the desperation and the danger that hundreds of thousands of people in the middle east and africa face as they flee persecution again from war poverty and other hardships and this has been called the worst refugee crisis since world war ii and i know we're american and i know we usually don't pay a lot to uh, pay attention to a lot of things and i know it's labor day weekend but this is 
freaking freaking important and it's that's why we need to talk about it and um because these refugees they're literally dying for a better life according to the united nations refugee agency over 300,000 people have risked their lives using again this dangerous mediterranean sea route to reach greece and italy from other nations just this year and last Sunday, 37 people died when a boat capsized off the um, Liberian coast. And then, um, I, I think it was a few more weeks before that, 200 people died when another boat capsized off the Liberian coast. Meanwhile, 71 people were found dead, abandoned, and suffocated in the back of a truck, okay? Um, because they're trying to get away and to escape these conditions, and they're fleeing to Europe. Where are they coming from? They're coming from Iraq, Afghanistan, Nigeria, Sudan, Liberia, Pakistan, but mostly from Syria. And again, it's uh, another reason why they're fleeing. And droves is because ISIS. ISIS has taken over so many parts in Syria and Iraq and just causing havoc. And these people need somewhere to go. And they're fleeing and they're dying and, and they're just trying to make a better life for themselves. And some of them are even being turned away, especially if they're darker skinned. That's also going on. So we have a lot, a lot to talk about. And we're also going to talk about how European, the European nation is handling it. Some nations are very welcoming and saying, you know, come into our come into our nation. Welcome. Other nations like Hungary have built a border to keep them out. Right. So we're going to talk about all of this with our very special guest who is on the line. His name is Joel Millman. He is a spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration. Good afternoon, Joel. Thank you, Selena, for having me. It's very important what you said, and I just want to correct a couple of things for your listener. I, I, I am under, I'm under the impression that the father of the Syrian boy, um, he survived, but I think the wife and the older son did as well. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that's right. Also, you mentioned the, leaving the coast of Liberia. The place they're leaving from mostly is Libya. Uh, in fact, we haven't seen many Liberians uh, in these boats. We have seen people coming out of Libya. So other than that, you know, I'm good to go. Right. All right. So I'll definitely um, fact check because I was watching um, his, the, the man's sister in Canada. She was reading this letter in front of a lot of press and she was just heart wrenching. I watched an interview with the father talking about how his family died, but we'll definitely yeah. just fact check that. Uh, thanks again so much for calling in Joel. Um, as I sure. mentioned, so people are being forced to flee because of poverty, hunger and persecution. Uh, can you talk more about the extent of the crisis and why people in the United States just don't seem to be paying attention? Well, it's an interesting question. And just let me clarify, we've been tracking this at IOM with something called the Missing Migrants Project for two years now. Uh, last year, 3,279 people died on, the, on the, all the seaborne routes to Europe mostly leaving Libya for Italy. There were very few deaths and a very small traffic to Greece. This year, um, Libya is running about the rate we saw last year, slightly more. Uh, Greece has exploded. I mean, there's just so many. 250,000, I think, have arrived already this year. Um, and the deaths now, as of this morning, are 2,700-plus. So we're very close to last year's total with almost four months to go. So it's deeply concerned to us. Uh, it's a, You know, this has been a, an unraveling, you must say. Um, first, Libya becoming almost a failed state with no real authority in the hands of militias and criminal gangs, and they've, they've generated a lot of the, uh, the migrant traffic 
And in, to, in many reports that we receive from our staff in Africa, these are almost kidnappings. I mean, there aren't, they aren't people who necessarily set out for Europe, but once they fall into this migrant route, um, criminal gangs hold them at gunpoint until they uh, find the money to, to pay for their freedom, and then the freedom equals getting on a very dangerous boat and being put out to sea. We've had cases of people beaten to death, stabbed to death, before they got on the boat because they refused. Uh, we don't consider this a migration. We consider this kidnapping and, and extortion. Uh, that's an extreme version. Um, Syria is something similar in the sense that people who, who fled to neighboring countries like Lebanon and Jordan and especially Turkey probably imagined going home after a few weeks or after a few months uh, when, you know, when, when the fighting was settled. Uh, now it's been five years, and very few people have that expectation. So we're really seeing kind of a heading for the exits, uh, families selling all their property, whole villages leaving. I mean, of course, you know, I, the ISIS offenses in places like Kobani last year, extremely important in triggering this. Incidentally, we're seeing uh, something similar in Afghanistan and Iraq now. Our people in Kabul tell us that 5,000 passports a day are being issued by the Afghan authorities, which strikes many as a kind of a, a kind of a panic. Uh, and a lot of those people, I think it's 32,000 this year, have arrived in Greece from Afghanistan alone. So these are all places that share one characteristic of very little confidence that peace is coming. Joel, hi, this is Alyssa. Um, I just want to jump in here. So I, you know, we have, since we started this segment, Selena has referred to these people as refugees, um, and you've referred to them as both refugees and migrants. Um, And I know we're talking about different groups of people, like you pointed out, people leaving Afghanistan versus people leaving Syria. But in my mind, and I was watching something on TV the other day that also addressed this, is that at least with respect to people leaving Syria, because there's a civil war going on there, there's a legal distinction between calling these people or referring to them as refugees, which uh, gives them some kind of status uh, to seek asylum under international law versus calling people migrants who are just leaving, for example, like, um, you know, different parts of the country, different or different countries for economic purposes versus people leaving Syria or war torn areas looking for, say, political asylum because of uh, and, and then being classified as refugees. So I'm hoping you could address sort of, you know, yes, these are in some sense migrants because they are migrating from one place to another. But I'm hoping you could address the sort of legal distinction between classifying somebody as a migrant and classifying somebody as a refugee when it comes to them being able to get some kind of legal status in another country. Right. You raise a very important point. And um, I can only tell you, I, I'm sort of inoculated now. Uh, I li- I've lived in Geneva for a year in this job, and I know that I speak of refugees and migrants kind of the way international aid agencies do. A refugee is only a refugee if he's forced, uh, forced migration, uh, fleeing conflict. Distra- we also call it distressed migration. Uh, that is one of the legal distinctions of what a refugee is. Also very important that a refugee cross an international border. Um, we, we consider it our agency a migrant can be someone in, say, the Philippines who lost their home because of a typhoon. They're not, they're not, they haven't left the Philippines, but we would call them migrants. That person wouldn't be a refugee under international law. So that's the main distinction. What we find in this particular, and this is why we mostly refer in our press releases and our speeches, to mixed migration flows. What we find in this current this current humanitarian emergency 
is a, a real overlapping. Um, I was in Tunisia in March. Uh, I was with I was with a group of our people when we rescued 89 migrants on a boat that was bound for Italy, uh, founded in international waters, and the Tunisian Coast Guard brought them in to shore. And there were, I think, 18 Somalis on that, that boat, and they were taken away right away by refugee officials because they were from Somalia, and they were considered refugee-eligible, asylum-eligible, because they're Somalis fleeing such a terrible crisis. You know, it's gone on for 40 years in Somalia. And, and I worked with our staff talking to the, the others, and they were mostly from Nigeria with lots of Gambians, Somalians, uh, some Ghanaians, uh, some Senegalese, um, and they, they were, would be in our parlance economic migrants, except quite a number of the Nigerians had compelling stories of fleeing Boko Haram. They were from the city of Kano in northern Nigeria. Uh, they then would maybe be reclassified as refugees under that. So that's, I'm trying to explain that it gets a little murky and there's some overlap. International Organization for Migration tends to use the word migrants as a, as a kind of shorthand catch-all. Uh, UNHCR, the United Nations Agency, uh, deals strictly with refugees. In fact, I think those are the ones who, who accepted the Somalis on that boat. Uh, but we all sort of do the same work. And we also find cases, uh, quite a number of cases, of migrants who would freely admit they left of their own free will, they weren't forced from their homes, uh, they went to become uh, what they thought were house cleaners or hairdressers or working in an office, and they're forced into prostitution. This happens quite a lot with uh, girls, particularly from Edo State in Nigeria. And we have rescued a number of them in Italy who have, who have agreed to, to cooperate with prosecutors and, and testify against their, their kidnappers. Uh, that Those women start out as migrants, but they absolutely become refugees, you know, right. on, the, on the road so, because of, of their treatment. So you can see that it's not a really easy black and white issue. Right. No, I, definitely. I mean, I guess the follow-up question is that, you know, regardless of where these people are coming from, whether it's Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, or some of the places in Africa you mentioned, those are all, from what I can tell, uh, nations that are currently having some type of either civil war or instable government where you have some kind of terrorist organization running part of it, um, or as you pointed out with Libya, just a s- sort of stateless territory where nobody's really in charge. So couldn't you say that in s- most circumstances, all of those people, regardless of whether they're coming from Syria, Afghanistan, or Iraq, could be considered refugees in some sense versus migrants? Most- most, without a doubt. I mean, we had 88,000 uh, reported Syrians in, in Greece, which actually isn't the majority. 250,000 have arrived. Uh, this year we know of 30,000 Eritreans from Libya. Uh, again, not a majority. Libya was, uh, you know, has already sent about 115,000 uh, up, up into Italy. So the word most, you know, to me means more than 50%. And last year, absolutely, last year they combined uh, – Syria, Syria, Eritrean component alone was eighty thousand out of Libya. So that that was that plus a few others wouldn't be most. But we have seen, and, and to be honest, um, we have seen a, a kind of buyer's frenzy in this market. If you if you to use a Wall Street term, uh, the, there are only six thousand Syrians reported leaving Libya this year. Last year, forty five thousand the whole year. Now, that's a, that's a component of missing maybe 30,000, 35,000 at this point last year. Their numbers have been more than been compensated for by a new group of migrants, Senegal, Mali, Cote d'Ivoire, Togo, Burkina Faso, 
all of this on the on the on the outskirts of, of the Sahel, you know, the Sahara Desert, all of which are, are are tend to be young men who have been persuaded by traffickers and, and smugglers and what we call in North America coyotes, uh, that this is the last great chance they're going to have to get to Europe. And to be honest, it would be it would be I think it would be wrong to say that 35,000 that have, have showed up from these countries. Uh, Morocco is another big one that's, that's starting to, you're starting to hear a lot from would be would be refugees because we don't know of any any conflict going on in some of those countries that would that would necessitate this kind of exodus. So we have to be honest and our European partners, you know, implore us not to not to just write and you know, decide for the public, you know, that it's one thing and not not many things that are going on here. Right. Um, so that kind of brings me to, you know, my next question, which I ask now, but um, we're going we're gonna to actually go to a break, but then you can come back and answer it. The question I want to pose is, what exactly is the European Union doing about it? So uh, from my understanding, European leaders have planned a migration summit in Brussels on September 14th, which is in a few days. Um, and Germany, mm-hmm. Italy, and France, they're calling for more equitable distribution of the refugees throughout the European Union. So it sounds like they they actually, you know, they're welcoming and they want to take a hands-on approach to dealing with these refugees. Um, you know, Germany, um, they take about 40%, but Britain and Spain, they take fewer. So we, they need to equalize it. But, you know, as I mentioned during my intro, Hungary has actually built a wall with its southern neighbor, Siberia, and vowed to deploy troops there. So um, when we come back, we're going to talk about, again, what the European Union is doing about it and what we should be doing about it here in the United States. So don't go anywhere. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. Yeah, Stanley, stick to engineering the show. We're back, guys. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3. The voice of Harlem. 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 And guys, if you want to chime into the conversation, the number is 212-650-6903. Yep. And we're having a very important conversation with Joel Millman, who is the spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration. We're talking about the refugee crisis. In the middle, we have um, droves of people from the Middle East and Africa flocking into Europe to flee persecution, hardship, war, and a lot of other things that are going on there. And there's been an influx within the last six to eight weeks um, simply because, like, number one, it's the summer months, and it's easier to travel um, when it's warmer out, and there's a growing prevalence of ISIS. So now we see all these people over there, and we're continuing to hear stories about people who are being kidnapped, people who are, who are being killed, they're drowning, and it's just a horrible situation. But again, we are privileged Americans, and, you know, sometimes you don't care about third world problems or countries, but it's time for us to care. And where we left off before we went to break, I asked Joel, what is the European Union doing about it again we have some countries like Germany who's taking 40% of the refugees but then you have countries like Britain and Spain who are taking very few and Hungary who has actually built a border to keep them out so um Joe can you sort of uh, give us a, a breakdown of what's going on and why why are some countries welcoming and others don't seem to be Wow, that's a that's a deep question, and uh, let me see if I can back up a little bit. Uh, we, you know, we're 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 an organization of 157 member states, and, and all 28 
of the European Union states are our members. So they're sort of our shareholders and our partners, our collaborators. And uh, we've been very careful not to single out Europe alone or any state alone for, quote-unquote, not doing enough. Um, it's really complicated for them. Uh, they have domestic politics to think of. They have all kinds of, you know, countries like Greece or economic difficulties or you read about in the paper every day. Uh, we think they've done a fantastic job in Greece. We think in Italy they've done a great job. They literally have saved hundreds of thousands of lives over the last two years. So it's not appropriate to, to single out any country and say what they're doing wrong. However, uh, the complexity of, of European European law, international migration law, asylum law, these are things that, that punch up against each other. And what's kept what's kept the continent from having a, a consistent policy in this emergency is partly because they believed at the beginning that they had a policy, something called the Dublin Agreement, where you were required to ask for asylum in the first country you got to in Europe. And nobody was doing that. I mean, a few people were, but mainly they were trying to get to Italy because it had the most borders to the rest of Europe, and you could get on public transportation, and you could race up up the boot and get into Austria or Switzerland or France and then quickly to Germany or, or, or further north. You know, Scandinavia is also a very popular destination. So you had a lot of countries uh, criticizing each other. You know, the Italians weren't doing enough. They weren't registering. They weren't fingerprinting them. They weren't telling these people that if you leave, you will not get asylum in Germany. You will not get asylum in Sweden. Uh, you're supposed to have it here. Um, and so the Italians would then respond and say, but wait a second, we're one of 28 countries, and you expect us to house 170,000 people who don't even want to be here, who have families, you know, in Berlin or in Stockholm. So this, this kept things from moving in a direction that would, would, would we call managing the emergency. Uh, but that's begun to change. And, and I think on balance, Europe has become very active and very responsible. The combination of the 71 people you mentioned, you know, who suffocated in the truck and the picture little boy had a really cathartic effect on a lot of, a lot of people in Europe this past week. Uh, we, we would say, uh, IOM, that uh, we criticized Europe bitterly earlier this year because they cut back on the rescue at sea program that was so effective last year. Uh, there, were, there were people, in, in, uh, mostly in the U.K., who were arguing that let them drown was the appropriate response only because it would, uh, it would stop people from coming. That's awful. And we, ser we seriously doubted it would stop. And we pointed out case after case, especially in February and March, when if, if a robust rescue flotilla had been deployed as it was last year, hundreds of people wouldn't have perished. And to their credit, Europe responded immediately. They did a U-turn, which politicians don't do easily, and they redeployed massive sea resources. And the results have been pretty spectacular. I mean, the, the, the death rate, sadly, has continued, but the number of rescues is just astonishing. I mean, you had 4,000 in a day a couple of weeks ago. Wow. And we're, we're talking about 20 or 30 little boats that, that big ships have to get out there and search the Mediterranean and get to them before they sink. And, you know, mostly they have. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Right. And the Greeks have been great uh, with, with very little resources. Where there is a problem right now, and you, you alluded to this um, with Hungary and its border fence, is you get to Greece, there is no border with an EU country. You have to jump over other European countries that aren't members of the EU that don't have the same rules. That would be Macedonia, Serbia, to some extent Bulgaria, uh, possibly Albania. But these are places that... 
they don't have clear rules. They're not part of the EU, and and there have been real fits and starts, and there have been um, anger, and you know, parties that are against migrants have been very vocal. There's been some hooliganism. There's been all kinds of things. I mean, Hungary's been the worst. Uh, and it's, it's, it's regrettable because Hungary is in the EU. You know, Joel, but I want to jump in right there and follow you up with that because I, that leads me to my like follow-up question about this issue is what role is xenophobia playing? Or I mean, I think there's two things going on. One, there's also an economic pushback, kind of something like what you see here in the U.S. when it comes to our immigration conversation. Like, you know, Americans don't have jobs, so why are we taking in these people that now need to find jobs? But I also feel like there's also a certain amount of xenophobia also going on. I was hoping that you could address that topic. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. I mean, it depends on the place. Um, I was in Hungary in March, and the the Fuhrer there, it's actually predated what's going on now. They were building, they were, they were furious with Serbians and Kosovars who were coming up using Hungary as a bridge to Europe or ask for asylum. Uh, and they were, you know, the, the Hungarian ruling party and, and quite a lot of the parliament were, were complaining that, these are these are fellow Europeans, sure, but they're Muslim, and we don't want them. And of course, they've doubled down on that. They said we'll take refugees, but only Christians. And I think the Czech Republic or the Slovaks had similar something similar this past week. Um, you know, it is a huge issue with, with tribalism. It's the only word you can use for it. Um, you know, I, I, I occasionally do radio in, in the UK, and and uh, there there are right wing parties as, as lethal as anybody who watches uh, Fox News. And I've actually received anti-Semitic emails because I guess I look Jewish on TV. <laughs> I mean, I am Jewish, but but people are just furious that I've expressed, you know, the rights of migrants, or, we, or people should more, be more open to migrants. So we feel it every day, you know, how, how much xenophobia there is. Um, this is this is something that that Europe is really going to have to deal with, as as the U.S. has. Uh, changing the way uh, the sale, the sort of the, uh, the threats to identity and the way that affects people. Um, you know, America's a success story with with with, uh, with its melting pot, much more than Americans often give credit. The resistance in Europe comes from four centuries of being a migrant sender continent and only 40 years of being a migrant receiving continent. Well, Joe, can I challenge you on that for a second? Because you said that America doesn't get as much credit as it should for it being a melting pot. But we've seen some aggressive actions towards, like, stopping people who are trying to come into the country um, and as well as people who are being migrants. And and, and with saying that, what what has America done, if anything at all, to kind of like put pressure or support these refugees, so to speak. Well, these uh, we don't we don't. I mean, I, I look. I think America last year was faced with a, a very similar, not quite as the scale wasn't as great, but the sixty-eight thousand miners uh, from Central America, a region I've spent a lot of time in as a reporter in the past, uh, uh, was was received with some of the, mo- the most kind of xenophobic and, and and mob kind of violence that. I'd seen them in the U.S. in a long time, and yet almost all of them got to stay in the end under some kind of protection. And there are efforts that are going on right now that IOM actually is involved with of helping minors who qualify for family reunification not have to go through Mexico and risk their lives crossing the border, uh, but actually coming on plane to the U.S. So I think the U.S. has a very good record in its own hemisphere. And, you know, we take in, the U.S. takes in more refugees worldwide than any other country in the world. They tend to process them in, in refugee camps. You know, you, you remember the famous boat people from the after the Vietnam War. Uh, over a million people were resettled around the world. It's, it's remarkable what the U.S. and other countries did. 
So uh, I think the U.S. record is good on the most part, but one thing you have to remember is, is governments like to be in the driver's seat. They like the idea of resettlement. They like going to Kenya and interviewing Somalis there and saying, okay, you're someone who can come because you've got an uncle in San Diego or you, you have a Ph.D. And, and, you know, you qualify. They like the choosing. What they don't like so much is when an asylum seeker comes and says, I'm here, and the law says you've got to take me until my case is settled. Well, and that, that's really exploded around the world, and that, that, may, that ticks governments off, you know. Um, Joe, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap this segment up. But before we do, I wanted to ask you about the responsibility the U.S. has in helping these refugees, and why is it that we're not? Well, I think he just said that we were, but I think the question is more along the lines of why haven't we taken in nearly as many people? Or, like, what are we doing to take in some of the refugees? Well, you know, it's a fair question. I mean, there was a case in Spartanburg, South Carolina, within the last couple of months, where a bunch of churches agreed to take uh, 65 Syrians, which is uh, approximately 1% of the, of the Syrians who we see daily coming into these countries, um, and just uh, they got a backlash principally from their Republican representative in Congress, Trey Gowdy, uh, who said, how do we know they're not all jihadists? How do we know that the State Department has done enough to screen them? Uh, it was quite an embarrassing moment for someone like myself as an American citizen who's been engaged with this, this issue for so long. I mean, it's a very small response, and, and very responsible people asked to do it, and yet you had it became a political football almost overnight. Um, it, it is something that I think it's fair when you criticize Hungary or anybody else to say, you know, look in the mirror and what has your country been doing? Um, on the other hand, you know, there, there, there is a very, very uh, good record of, of granting asylum from these countries for anybody who arrives at the Mexican border, uh, which, you know, we're in the thousands every year now. So uh, the U.S. isn't quite as bad a player. It's not in their hemisphere, so they're not directed affected daily the way the Europeans are. Uh, maybe distance has something to do with it. I, I think all countries, I think Australia, I think lots of places should be out there right now saying, how can we help? You know, how many thousand can we take? Um, it's, it's, it's the brave politician who does that. And, and let's be honest, not many politicians are that brave. Joel, thank you so much for calling in today and all the work and activism that you and your organization has been doing to help these refugees and raise awareness to this issue. Can you please let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you and follow your, uh, your organization? Well, I, our website is www.iom.int. Our email is media.iom. I'm sorry, media at iom.int. Uh, we have the Missing Migrant Project is, is available on the web, that we, and it's tweeted every Tuesday and Friday when we update the numbers. Uh, you know, it's very easy to find. We're the oldest organization of this kind in the world. We go back to the displaced people of World War II, which the film today that you're seeing from Hungary and other countries looks a lot like the same thing that was happening 75 years ago. So it's, it's really remarkable. And, um, you know, we think the world's in better shape to, to handle it than we were 70 years ago, and we hope that uh, we hope that people call in and help any way they can. Thank you again so much, guys. And I just wanted to leave this here for all of our American listeners on the domestic front who uh, chime in and who have been listening. Um, 
I think if you still don't feel connected, if the pictures didn't touch you and the stories don't touch you, let's just think about what's going on here, right? And immigration is such a huge prevalent issue. And I think that for the most part, us on the left, progressives, liberals, when we hear Donald Trump saying, let's build a wall and Mexican are rapists and all 11 million undocumented people need to be deported. And Chris Christie saying things like they... Uh, undocumented immigrants need to be treated like FedEx packages and tracked and shipped backed. Um, I think those are that type of rhetoric really raises a lot of alarm here with us and it resonates with us. But guess what? In Europe, they have the same right-wing type of mentality going on there. And we spoke about how there's so much discrimination and expo- um, and, and, and just people not being welcoming to uh to these refugees i mean even there was a european nation that said it was the uk that said let them drown we'd rather them drown and die than come into our country even though it's just a small fraction of all of europe uh, when you think about it in whole so i think that we need to just keep things in perspective and realize if we're gonna fight fight on the domestic front against um this type of rhetoric and this this type of discrimination then we also need to pay attention and be aware that it's happening on the other side of the world and they also need a voice And on that note, we're going to go to a quick break. But when we come back, Alyssa is going to break down a quickie talking about Kim Davis and same-sex marriage. And we are back. So, I'm Melissa Fuchs. I'm here with your quickie. Let's break it down. Uh, so, what are we talking about today? Well, actually, I'm going to start in a different place than you think I'm going to start, which is I want to bring you back to 1957 um, and talk about something that's not exactly the same but is very similar in some respects to kind of what we're seeing now and what I'm going to talk about later on in this quickie. So, in 1957, that was three years after Brown versus the Board of Education ruling that was handed down by the Supreme Court that said that uh, equal protection under the law meant that we could that separate but not equal did not qualify and um, basically said we have to integrate our lives, our schools, our water fountains, bathrooms, lunch counters, etc. And uh, so in 1957, in Little Rock, Arkansas, one of the places that still had not integrated was a place known as Central High School. And a lot of the administrators there refused to integrate the school on the grounds that their religion uh, said that, you know, it basically separate but equal was okay and that segregation was a good thing. And they used a lot of religious undertones to justify racism and bigotry against uh, people of color. And so So they refused to um, integrate the high school. And eventually what ended up happening was the federal government had to send troops in to force the school's hand and to force Central High School to integrate. Um, Anyways, bringing that up to speed now, and and so you're probably asking, why am I mentioning that? Um, Well, we have something very similar going on. It's not exactly the same, but it's another civil rights issue, a very modern civil rights issue that we're dealing with among many other civil rights issues. So it's not to discount other civil rights issues. Issues, but we're going to focus today on this one is 
As you remember, or should know, and if you don't know, I don't know what rock you're living under, um, back in June, the Supreme Court said that under the Equal Protection Clause and the, of the, and the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, that same-sex couples had the right to get married and that any state laws that banned same-sex couples from getting married were unconstitutional and were void. And they told these clerks in all of these counties that they had to start issuing marriage license as long as two people came in um, that loved each other, whether they they were two men, two women, or a man and a woman. Now, bring that up to today. There are some counties, and one of those counties, um, and it's not the only one, I should mention, um, Rowan County in Kentucky, uh, where the clerk there, whose name is Kim Davis, who's actually a Democrat, so, you know, put, put, should point that out, although I'm sure after this she's probably not going to be a Democrat anymore, but, you know, you got to be able to criticize your own. Um, and she said, I am the clerk of this court. I am not going to issue any of these licenses because I am Christian and it goes against my religion and I cannot affix my name or my stamp to these marriage licenses. And all of these couples, um, well, not a lot of couples because, you know, it's Rowan County, Kentucky, but several gay couples have shown up and they have attempted to get these marriage licenses. And every time they go there... Kim Davis refused to issue the marriage license. And this has been going on for several months now, since June when the ruling came out. And these couples, at least two couples that I know of, they're from Rowan County. And they're like, sure, we could go to another state, we could go to another county, but we're from Rowan and we want to get our marriage licenses here in the county that we've lived our whole life, which is fine. And they should be able to. And basically, Kim Davis had said, I'm not going to follow this Supreme Court ruling because I do not believe in it and it violates my religion. The problem is, Kim Davis is not a private citizen. She is a government official. And so she is not just, you know, saying it's not her First Amendment right to force her religion on other people by saying, I'm not going to grant the marriage licenses. Um, I'm going to get back to that in just a half a second. But basically what happened was she kept refusing to issue these licenses. And so these people sued her and said she has to issue the licenses because she swore an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution. And part of one of her responsibilities as the county clerk is to issue the licenses. And the Supreme Court has said this is, you know, it's unconstitutional not to issue them, so she has to issue them. And she was like, no, I'm not going to issue them. Anyways, this ended up going back and forth between courts, and courts kept telling her you have to do it, and then she still wouldn't do it. And finally, the what we'll call the petitioners, these people who wanted to get the marriage license, they finally filed a thing asking for a contempt hearing, saying that they want a federal judge to hold her in contempt for willfully and uh, not enforce you know not doing her job essentially now side note she can't be fired um because she's an elected official so she can only be impeached but the legislature is not in session so she actually couldn't be impeached right now and because she was still there she refused to let any of the deputy clerks issue marriage licenses either so finally this went in front of a federal judge and actually the petitioners these couples that wanted to get married were not asking for her to go to jail they were actually asking for her to be fined until she complied and fined in a hefty amount until she complied with the law and issued the licenses but federal judge said this is egregious you are a federal employee sorry a state employee and you have to enforce the law whether you agree with it personally or not you have to do your job and because you're not going to do it I'm putting you in jail and so now uh, Kim Davis was sent to jail and we should make her very clear she was not sent to jail because of her religion uh, she was sent to jail because she fails to do her job as a public official um, and this comes back to something I've talked about a lot about the First Amendment the First Amendment protects you from the government infringing on your religious rights now in some senses now that the government has put her in jail 
it could be argued, and I know a lot of people on the right are arguing that they are now infringing on her rights and they are depriving her of her liberty because of her religion. But the truth is they're not depriving of her of her relig- of her liberty because of her religion. They're depriving her of her liberty because she fails to do her job as a public official. Now, there's a really easy solution to this for Kim Davis, which is she could have easily said, you know what? It's against my religion to issue these licenses, and I realize it's my job as a clerk, so I'm going to do the right thing, and I'm just going to say, you know what? It's more important for me to not issue the licenses. I'm going to resign my position because I don't agree with doing this part of my job, and she could have walked away, and that could have been the end of it, but she refused to do that. She refused to issue these licenses. She forced her religious beliefs on other people by refusing to grant them the licenses that they were entitled to, and now she is sitting in jail and probably will sit there for several more days, and in the meantime, her deputy clerks are now issuing the licenses, and these people have now been able to obtain the licenses. Um, So that's what's going on in Rowan County. It is a ruckus. um, But at the end of the day, Kim Davis either has to do her job or she has to resign. She can't use her religion as a way to shield herself from doing her job. Didn't the judge say that there's um, one condition that in which she would be released from prison? And that is like, how how can she be released? You said she's going to be for a couple more days. How can she be? So basically, technically, the way a contempt order works is you're supposed to be held in contempt and held in jail until you comply with the law. Um, But I think that the judge also realizes that at no point is she going to issue the licenses. So I think this was sort of just like, all right, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to hold you in jail for a few days. While you're in, I'm going to start having your office issue the licenses through the deputy clerks that have no problem doing so. Now, side note to that, and I know Stanley wants to jump in real quick, which is now she's come out or her lawyer has said, well, those yep. licenses are void. They're invalid because her name isn't on them. But the fact of the matter is those deputy clerks, they're deputized for a reason. And they have the full power to issue those licenses in her absence. So at the end of the day, those licenses are going to be valid, uh, not void, regardless of what Kim Davis and her lawyer seem to think. Could she have just like said that she didn't want to do them and then let the deputies do it and been OK to keep her job and everything else? You know, I that's an interesting question. I, that depends on what the procedure at her office is um, or the procedure under Kentucky law as to how clerks operate. And I don't know what it is, so I don't want to speak on that per se. But, yeah, in theory, she could have said, well, I'm not going to issue them, but I'm going to allow my clerks to issue them. But the, the thing is, regardless of whether she couldn't, could or could not have done that under the policies of her office or under Kentucky state law, the fact of the matter is, is she – instructed all of her deputy clerks not to issue them also. So it wasn't just that she wasn't going to issue them. It was, I'm not going to issue them, and I'm going to tell everybody in my office, if you issue them, then you're getting fired. Well, that seems like Mm. extremely egregious. That's that's my problem with it. Because if it'd be one thing if she was saying, I don't feel comfortable doing this, but, like, the staff can do it, obviously. But she's, like, trying to stop everybody. In what world does that make sense? I mean, it doesn't. It, it, like I said, it's very similar to this situation in, you know, where the Central High School refused to integrate right. on the grounds that their religious beliefs said that segregation was okay. I mean, basically, it works like this, which is whether you like it or not. And there are plenty of Supreme Court decisions that I don't agree with, Citizens United, for example. Right. Um, but – The law is what the Supreme Court says it is at that time, and, you know, it has to be enforced, and the supremacy clause in the Constitution says that federal law trumps state law, so that's what it is. I mean, ultimately, I'll end with this, and this is actually a tweet that I got from um, uh, somebody who's actually a Christian activist, and she said, uh, her name is Rachel Held Evans on Twitter, and she said, no one's being jailed for practicing their religion, someone is being jailed for using the government to 
force others to practice her religion. And that is exactly right. That hits the mark. There's nothing else left to be said about that. Hopefully, Kim Davis will learn her lesson. But if not, you know. Well, thank you for that, Alyssa. Um, On that note, we do have to say goodbye for now. But guess what? We'll be back here next Sunday, same time, same place, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM. And, guys, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, and Scatter Radio, where you can get our podcasts. This could be WHCR 90.3 FM New York. This is Philip Harvey, the host of C3 Arts Radio, the broadcast arm of the City College Center for the Arts. From stages of Aaron Davis Hall to the galleries of Nairobi, Kenya, we cover the global arts scene directly from the heart of Harlem. Find us every Tuesday, 5 to 6 p.m. right here on WHCR 90.3 FM. And live stream us on whcr.org. And for all you real art enthusiasts out there, follow us at C3 Arts Radio on Twitter. Let's go to church. Let's go to church. It's Morning Praise with Dalton Anderson. Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Listen and enjoy the best in contemporary, traditional, quartet, gospel comedy, holy hip-hop, and gospel house music with the man who knows how to wait and bake and shake you right at your gospel beds. It's Morning Praise with Dalton Anderson. Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on WHCR 90.3 FM. Let's go to church. Tired of those same old songs you hear on those other stations? For neo-soul, R&B, hip-hop, and lifestyle advice, tune into The J-Spot with me, Jay Lee the Fabulous, every Tuesday from 7 to 8 p.m., bringing positive vibes and a soulful experience to the airwaves on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem. Veterans have difficulty transitioning their military skills into civilian jobs. In New York City, an estimated 17,300 veterans are unemployed. Are you a veteran in desperate need of help? Do you want to take advantage of a life-changing opportunity? If so, the 369th Veterans Outreach Program is designed to assist veterans in Harlem and surrounding communities. Veteran services include resume preparation, interview workshops, access to interview attire, and reliable transportation. For more information, call the 369th Veterans Outreach Program at 646-533-9292. Nurse, set up an IV. And you, her boyfriend, you were the driver? Yes, doctor, but I didn't mean to hurt her. I only had a few drinks. I was just buzzed. Just buzzed? Oh, then your girlfriend is fine. Hey, sweetie, I feel great. She's really okay? What, are you kidding? No, not really. Nurse, get me a suture kit. Stack. Buzzed driving. 
Maybe we should stop acting like it's no big deal. Buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. I'll pick you, up after school. you and your family are connected by routine, and you stick to it. 